Let's say we want some electricity. You can't just reach out and grab it, you've got to build the equipment for it. There's got to be a receptor on your end where the electricity can effectively flow in. So we've got to build it, and everyone's got to build something different depending on what they've got. If you've got a house, or an apartment complex, or a factory, you build different infrastructure. But you're all connecting to the same thing. In the end, we're all trying to get this. Tonight, we're going to assert that we're doing the same thing on a spiritual level here and here, and here. Not to hook up to the grid, but to the divine itself. We call these spiritual hookups conscience, and we're going to look at what it is, how it works, why we need it, and the potential of where it can take us. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborgian Life. Today we're going to be talking about conscience and how to build heaven in our minds. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm the host. I'm going to take us through this journey together. Now, when you hear the word conscience, you probably think about this guy, right? This, it's a pop culture phenomenon. I mean, do people... Have you guys seen Pinocchio? Do people still watch that? If the, the, the idea of some sort of internal dictate uh, between good and evil. This is good. This is bad. You got to do this thing. You got to do this thing. That's everywhere, right? So this idea of, of conscience is everywhere. But today we're going to look at the spiritual roots of consciousness. So not just consciousness, I mean, conscience, that's a little spoiler alert, not just conscience, but the spiritual level of conscience. So what, what usually goes down is this. Swedenborg, he goes, does this research, goes on these trips, learns these things about the ultimate nature of reality, comes back and takes a word that means something that we already talk about and fills it in with detail and with new angles and sometimes whole other layers of meaning and lays it in there. So when we're talking about something like conscience from a Swedenborgian perspective, we're not just going to be talking about right and wrong. We're also going to be looking at how it's formed, what it looks like in its different stages, and how it can actually be, yeah, the thing that plugs us into the state that Swedenborg calls heaven and through that to the divine. So that that's the stakes here. And you got to remember that everything everything is more expansive than we think it is. Everything is more complicated than we think it is. And I'm not just trying to sound cool or esoteric. If you want to study the amygdala or you want to study economics, those are not one paragraph things. Everything that's real is complex. There are little teeny moving parts to it. There's theory you have to know. There are places where we understand it, places where it's still a bit of a mystery. That's how real things are. And Spiritual things should be the same way if they're really part of this same reality. So there is more to conscience than just this this voice that's right and wrong. There, there's a complexity to it. And, and that shows even in the word, the Latin word that Swedenborg originally used that we get this English word from. And here's a footnote from the New Century Edition translation the first time he uses this word. The Latin word here translated conscience is conscientia a word that encompasses the concepts of both conscience and consciousness. 
Man, that Latin pronouncing that, see, conscientia. The point is conscience and consciousness, that there's, there's more to it. So just take your idea of conscience, whatever you already have, and just leave a little room around the edges because we're going to try to fill that in, you know. It's more than just Jiminy Cricket. It's an important part of our process. We're going to see if we can grasp some of that more tonight and see how it can be practically used to make our lives better, or why it's important, and why we would spend an hour of internet video time on it. So let's begin by breaking it down into the essential parts in part one. If we're going to know something, we should probably know its opposite, for starters. Right, so let's let's begin our search for conscience by looking at life when there's no conscience. And we actually happen to have video footage of a completely conscienceless situation playing out. We have security cameras here at the Swedenborg Foundation office, and they catch some pretty intense things. This one, th this clip you're about to see just happened to catch two of our video art director and our technical director. Um, acting towards each other as people without conscience would over trivial things. So you're going to see it play out in, in its shocking real form here. It's the law of the jungle. Nothing, you're not looking to anything higher. It's just what I feel, what I want. There is no principle outside of gratification or, or my immediate desires, right? That's what no conscience is. And we, so we know that, and, and we know that there's something is lacking there. That's not typical, normal human behavior from those two dudes. Now, let's take a look at what could remedy that situation. What is this conscience? And we're going to start at the beginning by looking at how conscience forms in us. This is from Swedenborg's book, New Jerusalem, uh, well worth a read. This is from number 130. He says, a, he has a whole section on conscience here. A conscience forms in us on the basis of whatever religious tradition we follow, depending on how deeply we internalize that tradition. You notice he says, whatever religious tradition we follow. That, I mean, today, that's pretty hip, but back in his time, that was pretty shocking, right? I mean, you know, there's not a lot of people saying, you can, you know, whatever path you have is good for you. So we have our basic formation conditions, whatever religious tradition we follow. However, it's not just following a religious tradition intellectually. It's not just, okay, I learned this thing, I did these rituals, I've got conscience, whatever that is, from this. No, he says that the an essential element of essential element of conscience is willing, like desiring and doing those truths. Otherwise, in other words, living by that. So it's not just the stuff that you load into your brain. It's the stuff that actually dictates how you approach life. And he talks about this in New Jerusalem 131. As we come to know and believe truths and comprehend them in our own way, when we will them and do them, then our conscience comes into being. Taking them to heart is taking them into our will, because our will is what we refer to as our heart. 
That is why people who have a conscience say from the heart whatever they say and do from the heart whatever they do. They also have a mind that is not divided because what they do is consistent with what they understand and believe to be true and good. So it's what you actually understand and believe to be true and good. There could You could be part of a faith tradition or a spiritual path or something to which only part of it really you really believe or, or really makes sense to you or you really think is good, and it would be that part that forms this conscience and whatever whatever it is your principles you hold highest now the more deeply you can actually improve your conscience the more deeply you study those principles and contemplate them by and put them into action the more you really work at those you can evolve your conscience within your tradition you can get better and better provided you put some effort and time into it. So we're building this conscience, um, and as we're going to see, it's worth building, but we want to just round out our description of it. We'll do a little compare and contrasting, all right? So we know already that conscience forms in you based on your, your highest principles and the principles that you live. This gives you this framework, but let's take a look at what it is and what it isn't. So here's a little chart. Um, so conscience is a life devoted to love for God and or love for our neighbor. Now, that's a Swedenborgism, because you might think, oh, so how much do you love God and how much do you, oh, my finger, and love other people? Or, But actually, he says that in brief, love for God is love for goodness, because God is the desire to help everyone, take care of everyone, serve everyone. So if you love the same things that God loves, that's a love for God, not just adoration of the person of God. Love for the neighbor Swedenborg actually says it means love for the truths or the means that allow things to get done. Either way, it boils down to the same thing, which is love for doing good, right? That's the basis. Just no matter what your particular faith tenets are, that's got to be the engine running the thing to really form conscience. What a conscience is not, yeah, <clears throat> keep watching, be, it's being focused only on knowing what is true and not by living it, only on knowing what is true. So yeah, right. If you're just accumulating knowledge to pass a test or to look good when, when someone's like, how much stuff do you know? Um, that's not going to do it. Obviously, that's not alive. That's, that's not anything that really is a genuine uh, compass point for you. It's not also, he says, look at this middle one, doing good just as a good-natured person, but not with higher reasons. He really says it. Some people just naturally are nice. It just comes easily to them. There's a pull to them for that. That's fine, and it's great, but that's not the same thing as conscience. Actual conscience is humility and obedience to higher principles, even when those are going against your nature. So there's something of a an active choice where you're going against negative tendencies. So it's not, you know, there has to be some um, freely chosen direction there to really make it conscience. Also, doing things only for worldly or selfish reasons. That might seem obvious, but then again, you can not want to harm people or not want to anger people for purely selfish reasons, because you want to look good or you don't want their retribution or you just don't want to be bothered, whatever it is. The only only really, the only real things that can fall under the category of conscience is if you're doing them because of love for what's good, right? So that's a conscience. So we've got our basic definition of a conscience, and now we want to look at how does a conscience evolve in us, and also 
are there sh- are there categories of better and worse conscience and is it ever something that seems like conscience when it's not let's sort of clear up a little bit more so we could potentially get to the point where we can use this thing to do something cool that's gonna be part two What does conscience do? Why is it even worth learning about conscience in the first place? What are the perks of having one of these things? Well, first of all, conscience focuses and directs our thinking. That's one of its primary functions, and Swedenborg talks about this in New Jerusalem 139. Conscience is an inner restraint that keeps us focused on thinking, saying, and doing what is good, and that holds us back from thinking, saying, and doing what is evil not for selfish and worldly reasons, but for the sake of what is good, true, fair, and right. Conscience is an inner voice telling us whether or not to act in some particular way. So we've sort of been over that, but do you see that end part? He says, conscience is an inner voice telling us whatever exactly he said, don't don't be bad, be good, to act in a certain way. However, a little bit of a red flag there, because... How many people are hearing some kind of inner voice or inner dictate, not even like a blatant voice, but just something that's making them miserable? How many people are are totally beaten up by their internal voice saying, you're not good enough, you should have done this? Are all internal impulses good? Also, sometimes people feel very strongly like, oh, I have to go do this thing or this talk to this person or that people get this strong what feels like an, an inner command to do something it turns out horrible it can't be you can't go around saying that everything that tells you to do something from inside you is good right i mean that doesn't doesn't seem to square with reality and it's true that, that not all of that is conscience and that swedenborg actually in his dealings with the spiritual world got acquainted with false conscience or a conscience that was deliberately trying to mislead, something masquerading his conscience, and it came from particular spirits he was around. This is Spiritual Experiences 3847. I think we're starting to get weird here. Because the deceitful spirits above the head have no conscience, the bond of conscience with them being so loosed that they do not know what conscience is, therefore they wanted to induce me to his spirits doing this to Swedenborg, to feel that something quite indifferent should also be a matter of conscience." thus burdening the conscience with anything that comes along indiscriminately, thus inducing on those who have a conscience, either true or spurious, the notion that it is a matter of conscience to do this or that, as they did with me, suggesting that I should eat or shop at a certain place because they are upright people, and so on. That, to me, is totally fascinating, because how often are we tied up in knots about something because we think it's a moral issue, but it's really not. That there, Swedenborg was, was they, those spirits, and if Swedenborg hadn't had his spiritual eyes open, he would have known it was spirits in the first place. He would have just thought it was thoughts and feelings, but they were trying to get him to feel bad about n- not patronizing a particular restaurant, saying, look, the people who run this are good people. You should do that. I believe in a different place in his journal, he describes spirits criticizing him for spending money outside of Sweden because Sweden was his country of origin and he was taking that money out of the economy. Those might seem like pretty innocuous examples, but there's a lot of people that are totally torn apart by this, oh, I should have done this, I should, which other people can see, it's not a big deal, let it go, but that person can't. So this is, there is such a thing, there is such a thing as this sort of false conscience or, or trying to make it seem 
to people that this is a moral issue when it's not. Not everything is a moral issue. There's plenty of things that aren't. So while I can't pick it out for you exactly which is which, just know that going into it. Hold it loosely and realize some things, uh, as a teacher I once had said, are not spiritual issues. It's not a spiritual issue. The, the small things can actually be small. That loaded into your mind. Let's dig further into this phenomenon of conscience, because when we can sort out what things are moral issues, it's going to be really powerful in moving us. And there are different levels of conscience, and it has to do with why we entitled this section, or why we titled this section like we did. And we th- these th- the need for distinguishing these levels really came up in a question we got from somebody in a forum on Facebook regarding another post that we had done about conscience long ago. So here's what the question was. It seems conscience is associated with only goodness, but if conscience is molded or formed by religious beliefs, like we claimed the whole first section, would it then be right to say there may be bad conscience, since religious practices tend to war against each other? If I did something according to my religious belief that is not accepted by your religion, would it be fair to describe me as a person without conscience? And I feel like that's such a great question because there are so many topics that it hits in there. First of all, there's the, the fact that you, there's no way that all the tenets of all religions are, are true. You have religions making conf- blatantly conflicting claims. You also have religious traditions claiming that things that just aren't going to be true are true. You have religious traditions urging people to do things that we, we find morally repugnant. So, can can it be that they're no they're not all right however that doesn't mean you not that you can't develop a conscience within one if you are living to a belief system and you believe it's the right thing even if it turns out to be false it can still work for you there so there's one thing but however the real issue here is uh this hey there's you're wrong i'm right can i call you out if you're following your own conscience tradition but mine is saying the opposite what do you do about that because there is so much clashing over right and wrongness in the realm of religion which swedenborg is saying is where we get our conscience from in the first place and this actually we get so this is a whole mess that we got here but we get a little bit of relief in the the two stages of conscience the two categories that swedenborg describes so this is New Jerusalem 134. People can have a conscience that is focused on what is good, and they can have a conscience that is focused on what is right. So right and good, hence the title of this section. A conscience that is focused on what is good is a conscience that resides in our inner self. A conscience that is focused on what is right is a conscience that resides in our outer self. If we are driven from within to live by the precepts of faith, we have a conscience that is focused on what is good. If we are driven by outward considerations to live by civil and moral laws, then we have a conscience that is focused on what is right. Next part. People who have a conscience that is focused on what is good also have a conscience that is focused on what is right. People who have only a conscience that is focused on what is right nevertheless have the capacity to develop a conscience that is focused on what is good, and they do so when they are taught about it. Did you get all that? Well, don't worry, we'll, we'll break it back down for you. So first of all, we're talking about right conscience and good conscience. And notice when he said that there was outer reasons for having a right conscience, even though the right conscience sounds like it's the, the, the right conscience, but it's just about being right, so it's a right conscience. And then there are internal reasons 
for having good conscience. If that's not helping, let's have a little blob tell us about it. So you have here our outer self that creates right conscience. And when Swedenborg talks about an outer self, he means all kinds of external concerns. So you could be following rules for relatively superficial, self-interested reasons, and you could have right conscience. You could also um, be doing it out of lack of study or some some kind of superficial self-serving reasons, even not that bad, but it, that, that makes right conscience. However, up top you have good conscience, which Swedenborg says, you know, this is the outer level, this is the inner. We start with this, we move to this. This is coming from the inner self or the higher self, Swedenborg says. It's the same thing. And that is something that is driven by love. That is something that is going from the 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 deep heart of, of what it is to treat human beings well, and go, then going out into the rules by which you do things. And the reason why we wrote all this on a blob is we happened to, again, through our security cameras, we left one on the kitchen table here, and it picked up an argument between these two blobs. And you're going to see that they both have their religious traditions, and you're going to see the way that it plays out both through right conscience and good conscience when they notice that each one of them differs in their religious tradition. They'll hear their prayer being different from each one, and you see how the different kinds of conscience affect how they view that and how they react. So here's the footage. Notice where it begins with each of those. With right conscience, it begins in the ideas. With good conscience, it begins with the love from God. And you see, when you go from good conscience, you still have your ideas, you still have your holy book, you still have your rules, but there's this love flowing in, and the reaction when you have this good conscience is one of understanding. That rather than looking for the where are the infractions against the rules you're realizing the purpose behind the rules in the first place which is to lead to love so there's this leniency this camaraderie there and you might say well where's your precedent man like what what religious figures have ever advocated for that it sounds like you're just sort of ditching the whole thing well how did, how does jesus christ do for you if you look at the relationship between jesus christ and the pharisees in the new testament it's this it's the relationship between good conscience and right conscience all these stories jesus the, there's all the woman caught in adultery uh, the jesus dining with sinners and tax collectors uh the arguments about can you work on the sabbath it was always the pharisees saying here are the rules you're not following the rules and jesus is saying the rules exist to help the human race relax and come from love. That was the whole relationship between those. In a way, Jesus represents this good conscience, and the Pharisees represent this right conscience, because you get the sense that they're they're following the rules, but they're not doing it out of, of love. They're doing it out of the longing for prestige, or that's how it seems. So there you have this very thing playing out. 
So that's conscience, right? That that is the way in which if everybody had that, if all the little blobs out there in the world, all of you and all of us and everybody had this good conscience and would suddenly look on the differences that we had with with care and with love, how much would that change the world? That sounds like a great idea. It's worth getting this conscience. Let's do it. And if that's not enough for you, I'll throw in something else. We're actually going to look in the next section at how conscience connects our minds directly to heaven and through that to the divine and allows the divine with love and wisdom to clean us out and really bring us in to heaven. So let's take a look. Part three. Swedenborg says, conscience is a plane into which heaven can operate. A plane meaning a field or a space in which activity can take place. That conscience allows heaven to operate in us. It's not just a little add-on you can have to consciousness. It is your connection. He talks about this in New Jerusalem 138. Without a conscience, we do not have a level into which heaven can flow and through which it can work that is, a way in which the Lord leads us to himself. This is because our conscience is the level within us into which heaven flows. It serves as the part of us that receives heaven's inflow. At that point, the Lord's influence reaches us by an inner way, through goodness in our conscience, and gradually and constantly detaches the evil that clings to us by heredity and by actual deed. And that's not, we're not going to be able to just through choosing what seems right and wrong in this situation, be able to clear all the scribbles out of our soul. We just do the the iceberg tip of that process. It's really divine love and wisdom coming in that clean out every little part, bring us higher and higher. So we need to have this plane of operation. Uh, I don't know, anything that connects you to heaven. You just think about the mess that can be inside you at times and just thinking about this this light coming in fixing the whole thing that sounds good man i want i want to get plugged in to that that sounds cool again if that's not enough for you you're fulfilling through this acquiring acquire yeah acquiring of conscience this dictate that's set out by religious traditions the world over now they're not all using the term conscience you will sometimes hear them talking about a new will but most often you'll hear about rebirth almost all traditions have some form of this become a new person um you know born again christians there's all all sorts of ideas of rebirth and swedenborg says this rebirth or this new will as he puts it this is conscience this is the beginning of it uh, for us. This is Secrets of Heaven 918. Those who whose conscience governs them or who act in accord with their conscience act freely because when you're when you have it, you love it. Nothing repels them more than violating their conscience. From this it stands to reason that as the spiritual person's conscience is a gift from the Lord that is like a new will. And therefore, that the person who has been created anew, or that rebirth, is supplied with a new will and from this a new intellect. It's the upgrade of the mind. And you may be thinking, I I can never get there. Like, I, I get into situations and I know, like, what the right thing to do would be, and I wish I felt that way, but I don't feel that way. That is the beginning of conscience. Everything grows 
organically. I mean, that's the physical world is a reflection of the spiritual. So just like any kind of organism, like us or anybody else, is going to grow, that takes time. It takes time to develop. If you had a brand new muscle, it's not going to be that strong. You've got to work it out. You've got to put it through reps to get it up. It's the same thing with conscience in us by making these little choices. We're just, just trying to open that gate and let the divine come in. And that's where this new will, this new intellect come in. And it's totally worth doing that spiritual workout because there's unlimited potential in developing this connection with heaven. Because believe it or not, you know, we said there's different levels of conscience. There's actually different, the conscience itself, sorry, wait, I ruined that, that lead up. Even though there's different levels of conscience, actually conscience itself is just a level in a larger process. We have a chart for you. Yeah, you're lucky you stayed till the uh, the third part. You get to see this awesome chart. Conscience is actually, in its entirety, just a step. There's another level that's above it, which is called perception. And what's the difference between conscience or perception? Whoosh! Yeah. Uh, conscience is focused on truth, is formed through faith in the truth, and is associated with what Swedenborg calls the spiritual kingdom, which is the second highest, the second level in the mind, open the second heaven. But perception is focused on goodness formed through love for the truth rather than faith in the truth. It's love. Like, you, you don't just, this is true, I believe it. You love it. You love that it's true. And it's associated with the deepest level of connection that Swedenborg talks about, which is the heavenly kingdom, uh, and that actually conscience is the stepping stone to perception. And why, you know, what's so great about perception? Well, Swedenborg describes perception as being almost mm, almost like a spiritual instinct, that, that just the way that animals are supplied with the knowledge for how to do what they need to do in life. We would be supplied with not only what the right love, but the right thoughts. This is Secrets of Heaven 202, where he describes perception. The Lord gives heavenly angels a perception through love of what is good and true. From perception, they recognize immediately whether a thing is so or not. How would you like to take a math test and immediately recognize whether anything on there was was true or not? But in life, they can know the tr- that the truth is... This Ludenborg says this is what it means when it says, it'll be written on their hearts. You know, the, the, the truth is so instinctual to them that they know it. Not only do they have this love in every situation, but they have the truth in every situation. So that sounds like a pretty cool state of life. And the way, so conscience is our way to get there. And the way that these two things, conscience and perception, would play out, they both can help to fix situations. They both help make life better for us as members of the human race, and they both can alter and, and be the antidote for the ways that we treat each other. We're going to show you side by side just how they do that in going back to our very first scenario that we had this episode, which was the, you know, the, the battle over the apple. Now, are these two same guys, we're going to see them again, and you're going to see the impact first that conscience would have, and then that perception would have both good, but you'll see the level up. So here is, again, some security footage. So you can see Stuart is not empathetic. He is, you know, 
enemies with Matt, and he's and his initial emotional reaction is, bleh, this is dumb. Who cares that he spilled that thing? He's in my way. I got to get to my desk. This is how conscience remedies that situation. Remember, conscience is knowing whether or not something is good intellectually. Even if the heart's not quite there, you'll see this is conscience coming in, giving the right thoughts to fix the situation. So he's, you see the, the bonds? I mean, like, he's got these principles. He knows that, listen, do unto others. You've got to do that. So the thoughts go through, and he's like, okay, I'll work against my will. Even though my will wants to be annoyed, I'll work against it to help. But with perception, the feelings lead. That immediately, when he saw this happen, he felt, and he knew, knows exactly what to do. This is how it would play out with perception in charge. That's nice. Everybody's back to being friends. The office is restored. It's silly, but we're trying to illustrate something that really could do a lot of good. So hopefully it makes sense, and hopefully it inspires you to continue to work on getting your conscience going, you know, so we can go up and up. Let's recap, just so we know everything we learned today. Here's our wrap-up. And what we're going to say here is that we all form our conscience based on the spiritual or religious principles that really matter to us. And more specifically, those we actually put into practice. Conscience keeps us focused on thinking what's good and staying away from evil, but that doesn't mean that everything needs to be a serious spiritual issue. Also, being right for external reasons isn't ultimately true conscience. Being good for inner reasons is. Besides just being the way to navigate life, conscience is the spiritual access port in us that connects us to heaven. But, as good as it is, Conscience is actually just a step in the process, leading us toward even better things. Uh, It's those better things that I wish for all of you, and I just feel like the mind can feel like a labyrinth at times. There's all these thoughts, all these feelings. I feel this way today. I have these impulses. Should I just give up today? What I find to hear about these overarching processes, even bits of them, inspires me to go, and it provides me with a goal and some structure, and I hope you guys feel the same, and I hope we can give you some of that. Uh, If you want to investigate more into this phenomenon of conscience, check out Swedenborg's book, New Jerusalem. You may have noticed that a lot of our content was coming from it. It's actually one of his lesser-known books, but in this he gives an overview of his whole worldview. Right, he summarizes his own stuff there. Download it for free at Swedenborg.com as a ebook or PDF, or you can go order a, a paper book. Thanks so much, everybody, for hanging out, and I hope hope you enjoyed it. If you did at all, please like and subscribe. That's important. That matters to YouTube, and YouTube is the way that we reach the whole world. So I appreciate you being a part of it. And if you want to make this happen, be part of the engine that drives this content train forward, then consider making a donation because we run off of contributions. So here's a little bit of our philosophy. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. 
That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. All right, question time. Hopefully, if, if this is your first time watching, yeah, you go, you can put in live questions to the chat as it's going, and we try our best, and by we, I mean me, tries my best to answer the questions, and you're going to see it play out right now. Luckily, my conscience will be my guide and lead me to say good things. Let's take a look at the first one. Miss D, what does Emanuel Swedenborg say about the creation of humankind? Adam and Eve, Darwinism, never heard Swedenborg's perspective on this. Does he mention anything? It's a vital detail. Yeah, so we have, first I would say, we have a show. And, uh, you know, part of the reason we started making videos is because we wanted to be able to provide good long answers to questions. I'm going to talk about but really, there's whole shows you can check out. We did a show called The Meaning of Adam and Eve, which, I'll spoil it for you, Swedenborg says those were not two literal people. That That's a symbol for the first spiritual epoch of human history. The first, what he calls a church. The, 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 the history contained in the Bible is not a literal history of the events that created the human race. Rather, it's a spiritual history. Of the human race, so that these two people, that married couple, symbolizes the the church or, or the the spiritual uh, phase that humanity went through when it was first starting out. <clears throat> as far as Darwinism, that wasn't around when Swedenborg was there. He didn't comment on origin of species. He doesn't really put much at all into the creation of the universe. He doesn't talk about how the universe began physically. Um, he does say when you think about creation of the totality, because he sees the physical as one slice, and there's a spiritual also, he says that, that the totality of creation don't think in terms of space and time as to how it happened. Um, but but no, he doesn't give a lot of specifics on how did the human race arise. He doesn't give a lot of specifics on how did life start on this planet, how did this planet form, how did the universe start. He's very much more interested in describing the spiritual world to you, um, and who knows, maybe he didn't even know, maybe he wasn't even, that wasn't part of what he learned spiritually, was the creation of the physical universe. So, um, luckily, the stuff he does say doesn't create a conflict uh, that I can see at all with the th modern theory of evolution, which is great, um, so you can delve into each and, and check them out and see where they, they connect, but yeah, in general, Adam and Eve, check out our show, The Meaning of Adam and Eve. Okay, let's look at the next one. Mary, does each spirit and angel have their own truth, or is there just one truth for all? <sighs> yeah, man, there's, well, okay, there's just one truth, meaning there's only one truth about the physical world, right? I mean, this microphone is here. It's really here. Like, it's, it's, it can't be somewhere else. Uh, for someone else, like they're, they're, even if we all thought it was in slightly different places, it really only is that one place. My sense is that's how it is in the super complex way for everything, like because there is God is this underlying reality, so God's got to be a particular way. But then again, um, 
when you say, does each spirit or angel have their own truth? Swedenborg says, heaven, which heaven is is like love and truth in your mind, is never the same for one person as it is for another. Really, what he describes is that we each receive the divine truth in a different way. So everybody's going to be able to understand things in a slightly different way from everybody else. That's what differentiates us from each other. So in that way, everybody has uh, an angle, access to a part of the truth that nobody else does, even though in heaven they all share. But I'm willing to freely give all my special stuff to anybody, but you have a mind that is uniquely yours. So sort of yes and sort of no. There's not like relativism there is there is an objective reality but there's infinite um truths within that and not everybody ha- has the same understanding of everything you know this the swedenborg describes a spiritual world even heaven where opinions on things still vary widely um and even where you're both right people can understand things from different perspectives so the truth is complex enough that that you know, like i was saying in the beginning truth is complex enough that it wouldn't just be like, here's the truth, here's one sentence that describes it, but there is, I think there is something hard out there. Does that, hopefully that answered your question, hopefully that made sense. Well, if it didn't, um, (laughs) nothing anyone can do about it now. Let's do number three. Lady Quinn, so how does this theory work as far as building heaven for special needs people or the severely mentally ill? Swedenborg does talk, it seems like a conundrum, yeah, if the whole point is to build these things in our mind and we work with it, what if the mind doesn't seem like it's functioning well? And so there's two answers I would give to that. One is that we never know how providence is working or what it, the real development part of our life is. It's not like I'm sitting there and masterminding my own mind. It's God doing the work and somehow doing it in spite of me or through me as as I go through life. So what I'm trying to say is, even if somebody you feel like doesn't have the same mental capacities, it could be that they do have the thing that is needed to make choices. And maybe there's different ways conscience is formed when your view of the world is different. On the other hand, so, so, so it could be that there is a way to form it, regardless of the mind that you have, that everyone, just as I said, has, the, has a unique mind anyway, so it's being formed uh, through that. However, Swedenborg does say that in severe cases of mental illness, uh, which prohibit us from really freely and rationally thinking about things, we can't do these processes. So those would, they wouldn't, it's not like you missed your chance, but they would be delayed uh, until the spiritual world, more in the spiritual world when those kind of physical maladies aren't keeping you back. However, there's got to be something you're doing here. There's no way people are just in limbo. So there's got to be some building blocks being laid down there as well. In Swedenborg's day, the conversation around mental illness and and developmental delays and those sorts of things was not nearly as nuanced as it is now. He doesn't spend a ton of time on it. I'm sure that if we're able to sit down, have a conversation, or or go see it for ourselves, uh, I'm sure there's a smart, fair system that's working there. And, you know, it seems to me like the more we learn about people, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the autism spectrum, uh, but other other areas where people before just thought, oh, there's nothing going on. These people don't know anything. People do have these rich inner lives just as much as, as you and I do. It's just about the communication of it. So the answer is something's got to be happening. Um, and whether, you know, some things are delayed, um, or what part of it's happening here, I'm not sure, and it's a great question. 
All right, let's do one more. One more, two more, I forget. Iris, how do we know what choice is made out of good conscience? It's tough because uh, you're, I don't know if you're ever going to be able to fully know, but you can kind of, you know, Swedenborg says we have sort of inner and outer thinking. Um, Swedenborg says that you can sort of evaluate, you know, and and you can just, you know, this experientially for yourself. You can evaluate what, why did I do that? You can look at it. And so we can do some examination of motives. And you can, what I do in my mind is, like, if I'm wondering am I just motivated by selfishness or by altruism? Like, I imagine me doing something, right? And I want to go do that. Then I imagine, like, that same thing just getting done by someone else or or without me involved. Do I still feel as excited about it? You know, that's that's a way that you can take a look. Um, But really, you know, it's not not always going to be a watertight thing that we know for sure this is good conscience. I think you just try your best. I mean, the very act of thinking, you know, I, I think I'm doing this for the right reasons and go. That That's as good as we can do, and that's good enough. And I think it takes humility and asking for help from God. I say, will you please help me make these good decisions? So if you're making an effort, even an imperfect effort, in that direction, I think you're on the right path. All right, let's do one more, uh, and then we'll go. Angel Shining. What are we supposed to learn from all those violent stories in the Old Testament that seem so different from what Jesus taught? I have a problem with Christians who take them literally. The Old Testament is a very difficult piece of text and a very difficult one to think you could form a conscience out of, right? We're talking about in this show that, you, you know, in the first section here, you live by the principles, but a lot of the principles you see in the Old Testament, that's, that's I would not want to be around people that are acting like that, so what do you do? Swedenborg spent the first, like, uh, 12 volumes, or, depending on your, your translation, um, 15 in English in the, in the New Century edition, uh, of his work te- teasing apart those Old Testament stories. Just like I said with Adam and Eve not really being about the first two people, all those stories, Swedenborg says, have this symbolic meaning. That's why they're holy. We have a good number of videos on that. I would say, look at uh, we did one called The Modern Cain and Abel. We did one called When Religion Went Wrong. We did one called The Meaning of Noah and the Flood. There, there's a number of them out there uh, on our channel. Check those ones. There'll be references to the others. They go into this this inner meaning, and that it's really, it's all stories about what goes on in our own hearts and minds. Our, the, all the wars and everything are the battles we go through inside. They're symbolic of it. It's the the story of the human race and how we're moving along spiritually. It's the story of God. It's the inner story of Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of meaning in there. If you don't want to do our videos, check out the series, Secrets of Heaven, that Swedenborg wrote. Uh, that goes through it piece by piece. It's heavy reading, but if you're into it, you're into it. Um, so yeah, I have I, I have a hard time taking those stories literally as well. Let me just endorse Swedenborg's view of it because I find it goes from confusing and disturbing these stories to when he describes the spiritual meaning, the, the, the correspondential symbolic meaning, it suddenly turns into fair and just and loving and useful. And it just, for me, it completely flips around. So that's that's where I get my inspiration for continuing to, to work with the biblical text. So can't recommend Swedenborg's correspondential view highly enough. Obviously, that's why we're doing this Swedenborg shows in the first place. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you had fun tonight. I certainly did, and we're going to be back at it next week, and we're going to travel over to look at water. 
The water is all around, and as I was just talking about correspondences, he's, Swedenborg says water is this symbol for this spiritual truth, and that we can, by looking at it and how it behaves, learn things about ourselves, about our minds, about the way that God works, about the way life works. So don't you want to be able to look at water in a new way? We're going to do that next week. I uh, hope to see you there. Thanks. Swedenborg and Life is a production of the Swedenborg Foundation. Curtis Childs is our host and producer. Art direction by Matthew Childs. Technical direction by Stuart Farmer. Ben Keyes, visual effects technician. The content writing team is Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, and Chelsea Odner. Regular research and content support from Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition of the works of Emanuel Swedenborg, and Cara Dom, Latin consultant for the New Century Edition. Shada Sullivan contributes her heavenly voice to most of our readings. Amy Aquarola is our marketing communications coordinator. Alexa Cole is our online media coordinator. Our editor is John Connolly. The moderators for our thriving online community are Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Alexa Cole, Chris Dunn, and Chelsea Odner. And the executive director of the Swedenborg Foundation is Morgan Beard. Special thanks this week and every week to the generous donors that make our work possible.